Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Yale University, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study explosive transients in their native habitats. You're listening to episode 41, Weighing the Universe. And believe it or not, most of space is actually really far away. And beyond that, a large fraction of astrophysical objects are actually really massive. So they're massive enough that if you tried to measure their weight with any kind of human designed scale, it simply would not work. <laughs> this was Astro Obvious Facts with Alex, Melina, and Will. Tune in next week. <laughs> So how do we figure out the masses of these distant objects that are, in many cases, far, far more massive than the Earth itself? Now, Melina, before we move on, I just want to make sure we're all clear about something. You use the words weight and mass interchangeably, and we understand colloquially that we can use those interchangeably because how much we weigh is our mass. But in truth, weight changes based on gravitational field and mass does not. So mass is an intrinsic property, and what we're really doing, though it's not so catchy, is massing the universe. <laughs> it just didn't sound as good as a title. <laughs> no, it really didn't. Yeah, yeah. It's not catchy. So it's okay if we use weight and weighing to mean mass and massing, but we should just get this <laughs> disclaimer out so that people don't yes. think that we failed fifth grade science. <laughs> yes, I agree. Weight and mass are separate things, even if we'll kind of talk about them in similar ways here. If you're ever unsure, kilograms or grams unit of mass and pounds or, I guess, stones, people <laughs> yeah. use that outside the U.S., right? <laughs> unit of weight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the focus of today's episode will be, I guess, massing the universe then and figuring out the masses of lots of different astronomical objects across the universe. So to warm us up a little bit, Will and Alex, could one of you tell us, to order of magnitude, what is the typical mass of, say, an asteroid? It's really hard to find kind of a median value for asteroids because the range is so huge. Yeah, I definitely didn't bother to try to find a characteristic. So the largest and smallest, we can sort of say with some certainty, uh, the largest asteroid is Ceres at 10 to the 21 kilograms, which is one one hundredth the mass of Mercury, really big, nearly planet-sized. Hmm. Hmm. And the smallest known asteroid is about 5,000 kilograms, and that was found in 2015. There's a NASA press release comparing the size of that asteroid to an ostrich. So you can imagine <laughs> an enormous rock ostrich, and there's the smallest asteroid that's been discovered. But in theory, there are smaller ones, right? They could be a speck and still be considered an asteroid. Yeah, and there should be a lot more of the smaller ones because they follow this power law distribution, mm -hmm. at least in the solar system, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So they fall off as R to the minus like three and a half or 
so. I mean, it's going to be a little bit different for different populations, but you get many more small asteroids and just a few of the bigger ones. Mm -hmm. For listeners interested in learning more, you can hearken back to our Power Law School episode to learn all about the uh, power law distributions we find naturally, astrophysically. Yes. All right. So we know the typical mass of an asteroid. For comparison, what's the typical mass of, say, a planet just moving a little bit larger in scale? Sure. My initial impression for this one was that our detection methods are so biased toward massive planets that we wouldn't Mm. be able to constrain the mass distribution Mm. of exoplanets. But I did find a paper. It's called Mass Distribution of Exoplanets Considering Some Observational (laughs) Selection Effects. It was published last year. And they argue that the distribution, after you account for all of the different biases, follows a power law distribution with the majority of planets below about 10 to the 26 kilograms. That was the number they quoted. Hmm, interesting. So for this answer, I just looked at the solar system because we know the masses of the planets in the solar system really well. And Mm -hmm. outside the solar system, it gets hard fast. You have to assume all sorts of things. So if we consider Mercury up to Jupiter, it's... 10 to the 23 kilograms to about 10 to the 27 kilograms. So that's only four orders of magnitude difference in planet mass. But in asteroid mass, there's 18 orders of magnitude difference. (laughs) So it tells you a little something about what it takes to be a planet versus an asteroid. But if it gets to be a really, really big planet, then it's not a planet at all. And then you get to stars, right? So what's the range you'd expect for stars? Or what's the typical stellar mass? Yeah, so because M dwarfs are so common, right, power law distribution, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. median mass of a star is somewhere around 10 to the 29 kilograms. Okay. This is about a tenth the mass of the sun. Right. What I found is that's close to the lowest you could possibly have a star because the about 10 to the 29 kilograms, if it's any smaller, it can't fuse hydrogen and it'll be a brown dwarf. Hmm. But the most massive star might be, not confirmed, might be 10 to the 32 kilograms or so. And even that's dubious. So at best, we're talking three orders of magnitude in star mass. So even less than the the range of a planet. And the range for stars overlaps with the range for black holes, right? Yes, it does. But black holes can be substantially more massive? Mm -hmm. Depending on their formation mechanism, for sure. Yeah. I guess the next things that come in the scaling range are then black holes and galaxies, right? So what's the range for each of those? Right. Yeah, so for stellar mass black holes, there was a paper in 2011 that suggested the most common ones were somewhere between 5 and 10 solar masses. So Mm. order magnitude, that'd be about 10 to the 31 kilograms. Mm -hmm. But of course, there are supermassive black holes that are on the order of millions of, of solar masses. So they're significantly bigger. Right. Right. In theory, the same thing as the smallest mass black hole is the largest mass neutron star, right? Because at the end of a star's life, it can either become a neutron star or a black hole. And so there's some theory that says you could get a black hole as small as two solar masses, but the smallest discovered is about four solar masses. So it's about 10 to the 31 kilograms. And the largest supermassive black hole is 10 to the 41 kilograms. So we're talking 11 orders of magnitude size difference in black holes. Pretty big. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And does that overlap with the range of galaxies, I'd imagine? Because there are dwarf galaxies, too, that are pretty small, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's still an open question to what extent there are black holes in the mass distribution in between, right? Intermediate mass black holes that we've talked about on previous episodes. The smallest galaxy I could find is 10 to the 35 kilograms. 
and that's one of the satellite galaxies of the Milky Way. And the largest known is 10 to the 43 kilograms. So 100 times larger than the largest black hole known, not actually all that much bigger. And we're talking Mm. there eight orders of magnitude difference in size. So substantial, but not like black holes or asteroids. And I was finding somewhere around 10 to the 40, maybe a little bit lower kilograms for the kind of typical characteristic mass of a galaxy. Mm -hmm. Okay. That actually seems like a pretty similar range to the black hole range. Just it is similar. Kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like we've kind of covered the full range of what types of objects span different mass ranges across the universe. But how do we actually figure out the masses of these objects? So what are some of the common methods that we use to determine those? Yeah, it's really hard. There are things that are much easier to determine, say diameter. You can find the diameter of an object without too much trouble, and even the distance of an object is not crazy hard. It's hard to use the cosmic distance ladder, but it's not the hardest thing. Mass is actually seemingly the hardest thing in some cases because you can't do it directly with a single object. Most cases, you need to use its gravity and how that affects a secondary object. So for example, in the solar system, long before we were able to send spacecraft around the solar system, we used Kepler's third law on planets that had moons and you figure out the period of the moons. But that only works for six of the planets. For Mercury and Venus that have no moons, it doesn't work. And in fact, the mass of Mercury and Venus were only really known when we sent spacecraft to those planets in the second half of the 20th century. And there was some effort to measure them earlier based on the way they impact Earth and Mars's orbits, but that was pretty rough, not a great estimate. So planets now are solved, but historically could be hard if there are no moons. Asteroids, mm-hmm. if, it, if the asteroid has a satellite, is easy. But usually the way that asteroid masses are measured is by inferring a density using spectroscopy. So we use some idea of where the asteroid came from, what its composition is, guess a density, we know a size, and then we can find the mass. Mm-hmm. For black holes, it's actually one of the easiest because so many things orbit black holes, you can track the periods. Not the hardest thing. I mean, not easy. People spend careers on it, but not the hardest thing in in theory. (laughs) Galaxies can be tricky, cannot be. If you recall from the many times we've talked about dark matter, the galaxy mass made up by the things you can see is only about one-fifth of its total mass. So finding all that dark matter requires a couple of different techniques, one of which is to use the luminosity and know a priori a scaling relationship to scale that to the mass which works if we already know something about the mass of other galaxies. But the best way to do it is to find some tracer objects within the galaxy itself and use those tracks to recover the mass. It's not easy. These are hard methods. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of them are pretty indirect. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's not like a direct put it on a scale type of thing. You really have to find these (laughs) innovative ways to understand how the object's interacting with other objects. Yeah, and I will add, Will kind of alluded to the idea of looking at the gravitational influence on other things that we can see. The things that we can see, typically things Mm. that are bright, that shine. And so, for example, stars, kilometer clusters, tracking the positions of those is really, really valuable for determining the mass of different objects. So the Gaia mission 
with improved astrometry has been mm. critical for better understanding, for example, the mass distribution of the Milky Way on the higher mass end, but also for individual planets in select systems based on the motions of their stars. Right. Absolutely. You can actually determine whether there is a planet in the system based on if it ends up wobbling a little bit and the very precise astrometric observations from Gaia. It's amazing. Yeah. Exciting stuff. I will say there is one case where finding mass is actually easy, and that's main sequence stars, because all you have to do is look at their color, since color and mass are correlated. We believe, although there's uncertainty in the particular tracks used to determine that, that relationship. Fair enough. <laughs> Always caveat. <laughs> <laughs> So we talked about a couple of ways that you can get the masses of some systems. Are there certain systems where it's especially hard to get the masses or maybe even impossible to get the masses? I think Will presented a good overview of what methods are easy to do, what methods are hard to do for different systems. But actually, it was, it was interesting, Will, that you ended on the note about stars, because I actually wrote this down as something that is really hard to determine the mass of. Oh, in terms of dynamics, at least, because those are pretty accurate methods if you're able to do it. But if you have an individual star in a system, there's nothing interacting with it gravitationally, you're not able to use any of these traditional dynamical methods to tease out its mass. Right. But I will say, in 2017, there was a team that measured the mass of one star, an individual star, by measuring the degree to which light from a background star was bent as it lined up along our line of sight. Nice. So this is using Einstein's theory of general relativity, and it was the first time it had been done for a single stellar system. But it turns out to be incredibly sensitive. That's kind of surprising that it hadn't been done before, because there are lots of stars. Stars are constantly lensing. So why is that really difficult to do with stars for some reason? It turns out you need very precise astrometry to see when these things are being mm. aligned and lensed, and you need really precise photometry to know by how much the brightness is changing from the different stars in the alignment system. So another example where Gaia is going to hopefully allow us to do this with many more systems than have been done in the past. Right. Very cool. And just to wrap up our intro before we go into some in-depth studies of some of these systems... What's the most massive object that's ever been found? <laughs> this is going to have to be an astronomical <laughs> object, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> so it really depends on how you define object, right? Because at some point you could say <laughs> the whole observable universe is one object. Right. And <laughs> therefore, but I mean, that gets a little silly. There's an argument to be made for this cluster of galaxies called SPT 2349-56. It's redshift of 4.3, so we're seeing it as the universe was only 1.4 billion years old. It contains at least 14 galaxies that are merging, and so the mass in solar masses is 10 to the 15. That's 10 to the 45 kilograms. So it's actually not quite the largest galaxy cluster known. It's close, but... We think by now, after many billions of years, it would actually have formed into a single galaxy and then have many pieces around it. So if it did do that, and we won't know about it because the light will take many billions of years to reach us, it would certainly be the largest galaxy we've ever discovered. And galaxies are really, in some ways, the largest objects. That's fascinating that we haven't actually observed it as a single object yet, but it will be. <laughs> in the distant Absolutely. future, or, or even now. Uh, it's just a matter of light travel speed. Right. 
very cool. <laughs> and it is kind of a question of whether you would consider clusters and superclusters to be individual objects because they're they're gravitationally bound, yeah. but they're collections of different individual systems. So I don't know. It's a question. It's a question. <laughs> It's a linguistics problem more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now that we've learned about some of the general techniques that go into weighing the universe, we're going to dive into some specific examples of how we've learned about certain systems by studying their masses. So Alex, could you start us off with your astrobite? Sure. So my astrobite is called an exoplanet weigh-in using simple dynamics by Sumit Kulkarni, based on a paper by Brandt and others published this year in 2021. Exoplanets. <laughs> Exoplanets, yeah, get excited. <laughs> now, there are a few truly iconic photos in history. So think Tank Man in Tiananmen Square, the moon landing, that one pic of Che Guevara that people wear on t-shirts, and of course... <laughs> The picture, or it's actually a series of pictures, of the system HR8799. I'm sure we are all very familiar with it. I am, but I'm biased. (laughs) (laughs) HR799 is the first system with planets confirmed by direct imaging, and the only system measured to date with four directly imaged exoplanets. Wow. This is really exciting science. And... I have talked a lot already about the Gaia satellite, which repeatedly measures the positions of more than a billion stars in our galaxy over time. This is astrometry. And the number of sources and the precision of the measurements get better with every Gaia data release. Early data release 3 came out December 2020, with over 1.8 billion sources and their positions. Now, this precise astrometry lets us measure tiny variations in the position of stars directly without having to infer their motion from spectroscopy alone. And the authors use this to determine roughly the mass of a planet in the HR8799 system. So they just got one of the masses, though? What, what about the other planets? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. So... You have to know what's going on for all of the planets in the system, or at least make some simple assumptions about what's going on for all the other planets in order to get the masses of any of the planets. Right. So the authors look, in this case, at 8799E, which is the closest in massive planet that they've discovered. It's about 15 AU from its host star. Okay. And an earlier group used the code Orbitize to determine the posterior distribution of orbital parameters for all of the directly imaged planets. Hey, I'm on that team. Nice. <laughs> Go orbitize. Right no way. <laughs> Alex, what is a posterior distribution? Right. So I should say that all of this research is done in a Bayesian framework, which doesn't give you a single estimate for, say, one of the orbital parameters of a particular planet. It gives you a distribution of values with the most likely value, but also mm-hmm. some sense of the range of values that it could be. So this is really useful because you can propagate this through to say, not just here's, I think the mass is X kilograms, but you can say, I think it's X kilograms with some standard deviation. It's maybe this, it's maybe not this, but there are some regions that are almost completely excluded by this method as well. I see. Right. So were there better constraints on the orbits of the other planets? And that's why those were then used to determine what the mass of E is? Yes, yes. So great question. And this goes back to the other planets argument. So all of the planets tug on the host star. You have to account for that. 
-hmm. But it turns out you can assume some uniform prior on the mass of one planet, the distribution, and then assume mass ratios for all the other planets relative to that one planet. So when you say a prior, that means you're saying we're hard coding in that we know this thing. A distribution that we believe to be realistic for what the mass of this one planet should be. Okay. And it turns out that you can use a fairly broad distribution because you're you're trying to get information about the mass, right? So you don't mm -hmm. want to encode too strong of a prior. But if you just assume some simple argument for the range that it has to be within, then you can still make some fairly realistic estimates. And I should say that for the mass ratios for all the other planets... They use an argument based on the relative brightness of the different planets as they've been directly imaged to say this planet is more massive or less massive to a certain threshold within okay. some uncertainty. And then from that, you okay. can do this whole argument. Mm -hmm. And I should say that earlier data releases of Gaia didn't have the precision to constrain the host star's acceleration. So this is something that could have only been done after December 2020 with the new release. I think that's really exciting. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. How tightly were they able to constrain the mass of this inner planet using that data? So the mass that they derive, the final estimate, is 9.6 plus or minus about 1.9 Jupiter masses. About okay. 10 Jupiter masses. Mm -hmm. And this is a pretty okay. tight constraint. I should say that the authors also played around with different mass ratios mm -hmm. for all of the different planets to see how this would propagate through to uncertainty in the final mass of 8799E. And you get only kind of negligible differences in the final mass derived. So it seems like they're pretty confident that this range is realistic for this object. Okay. Wow. Does that account for all the residuals in the system? So is there any evidence for extra planets that might have been undiscovered that are maybe smaller? Aha, aha. Great question. So this is kind of what makes this paper a two-for-one deal, because in addition to inferring the mass of the innermost planet, they also are able to rule out any planets greater than six Jupiter masses between three to six AU from the star. So okay. in the innermost regions, if you have other massive planets, they would be tugging on the star in a similar way, mm -hmm. and then you can mm -hmm. infer their existence, and it seems like the planets that we're able to see, for the most part, can explain the astrometric differences between Gaia observations. Right. That's really useful to know, because I'm not 100% sure, but I think that might be the region that is covered by the coronagraph in these directly imaged systems, and so... You wouldn't actually be able to see the planet if it was there because you're covering mm -hmm. up that part of the system, right? Yeah, there's also an inner debris disk associated with the system. Right. So if there were unseen inner planets, then it could say something about planetary evolution and formation. And Anyway, it seems like there are no far inner planets that we don't know about mm -hmm. that are very massive, at least. Right. Very cool. I still can't get over that there's a direct image of this system. <laughs> It's, yeah, there's a series of images that have been made into a GIF, 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 how do we feel about that? Uh, let's not talk um, about that. <laughs> but you can, you can flip through it, you can watch a video of these planets orbiting their host star, it's incredible. We'll link to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the rest of Gaia's data release three is planned for the first half of 2022, so stay tuned for even more surprises. Should we have a data release party? <laughs> let's do it like i'm downloading tables here we go <laughs> i can't wait i'll set my uh set my clock amazing well thank you for that exciting astrobite alex and i think 
we'll move straight into our spectacular space sound of the highly variable Fortnite. <laughs> so uh, this space sound was the second place in our sonification competition. Woo! Woohoo! <laughs> it was made by Thardu Jayasinga. And it's mm-hmm. a sonification of the test light curve of the most extreme heartbeat star known to date, which is called Macho 80.7443.1718. I think we've actually had some sonifications of heartbeat stars in the past, but as a quick reminder, heartbeat stars are binary star systems where the two stars are on really highly eccentric orbits around the center of mass. And... Uh, what Tharundu did was he took one of these systems, a very, very extreme version of a heartbeat star, and he sonified it using the Astronify software. And in the audio clip, you're able to hear these really strong ellipsoidal variations where the stars are being tidally distorted at periastron, and they're actually being sort of stretched out. And so within the light curve, you can see these changes in light as the star is being made to look more oblate, and that leads to deviations in the light curve that you collect with your photometric observations. And you can also see these really interesting, or in this case here, these really interesting tidally excited oscillations that continue to echo after the perihelion passage. All right, so we'll take a listen and try to listen in for all these different features that are in the light curve. that it's a single heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. So you can hear sort of the overarching change in the light, but you can Mm -hmm. also hear those really cool sort of oscillations that are happening just from the echoes of the oscillations after perihelion. Oh, from the tidal excitations, right? Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So something I especially loved about this space sound is I felt like I could really hear the science in the sonification and it really Mm, mm. made more visceral the concept of a heartbeat star for me. Uh, So I really appreciated that. I felt like I learned a lot by listening to the sonification. Yeah, that was a great one. We should mention that uh, Tharundu is a PhD student in astronomy at Ohio State and he has produced a number of sonifications of heartbeat stars and other binaries that are all available on a website we will link to. So you can listen and enjoy. Yeah. Lots of wonderful sonifications to dig through. And thanks for submitting to our sonification competition, Thurindu. It was great to hear your sound. We we really appreciated it, and it was so much fun to listen to. So thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. So that takes us to our second astrobite, where we get to learn more about different types of masses, no longer in planetary systems this time. Sorry to disappoint. (laughs) (laughs) alas it's okay (laughs) so will can you tell us a little bit more about your astrobite yes the astrobite i'm bringing today is called missing dark matter in a nearby dwarf galaxy it was written by rowan hagar and the paper is by michelle collins and others published in the monthly notices of the royal astronomical society this year so let's remember what a galaxy is made of Mm mm-hmm It's got gas, it's got stars, it's got dark matter. Mm -hmm. But four-fifths of the mass comes from the dark matter. 
And most of the dark matter is in a halo, vaguely spheroidal shape thing around the galaxy. And if it's a spiral galaxy, the halo will extend out of the plane where there are very, very few stars. So it's really not known exactly what shape these things are, but there's a lot of evidence that it certainly is there. But in this specific object we're going to be talking about today, things are a little different. I think you mentioned that four-fifths of the mass tends to be in dark matter. Is that generally true across almost all galaxies, or is there some variation in that? Oh, there's definitely some variation. This is a really rough average. I'm sure the exact number is much more precise, but that's a, a rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. And I would guess also if in this particular system it's really hard to determine kind of the spatial extent, then it's also not easy to determine how massive it is, right? Yes, it, it can be... It can be exceptionally hard, and there are not all that many galaxies that we know precise mass of. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to focus on a specific object called Andromeda 21. It's got a cute nickname, And 21. <laughs> and so the way this is written is in Roman numerals, XXI, but you say it is 21. So if you go to look it up and you see Roman numerals, don't be scared. <laughs> I was a little scared. <laughs> It seems very grandiose. It does. <laughs> okay, so how big is this galaxy? And 21 is actually pretty small. It has a half-light radius of one kiloparsec, and that's the radius at which half of the observed light is contained. So one kiloparsec mm -hmm. and Milky Way-sized galaxies are somewhere tens of kiloparsecs. So it's a dwarf galaxy. It is right. a satellite of the Andromeda galaxy. And... Mm -hmm. Not only is it tough to weigh a galaxy, it's even tough to measure the size of a galaxy because mm -hmm. the light tapers off and then right. you have the dark matter halo. So they use this half-light radius as sort of a signifier. So they were able to use that to determine the mass then? Or did they have to use another method to figure out how massive this galaxy is? Right. Measuring the mass of N21 was an involved process. And they did it the hard way. So the easy way <laughs> is you can measure luminosity and use an existing luminosity scaling relationship and hope that it's right. The hard way is to do spectroscopy and to look for individual stars to measure their Doppler shifts and then infer their velocities. So you mentioned the half-light radius for size where you have to go out and just assume if the light falls off at a certain distribution, you just pick a cut and say, this is how wide it is based on the light distribution. Do you also have to do a similar thing for mass where you say, I'm just going to say the mass of this galaxy is the mass enclosed at a certain radius, I guess in this case, the half-light radius and everything outside of that, I'm just not considering. That's a great question. One of the simplest physics problems you start to solve when getting involved in like an undergrad physics course is the gravitational potential of, say, like a solid sphere or a shell. And you learn that if it's spherically symmetric and you're inside of it, you feel no gravitation from it. Its gravitational potential is uniform. And okay. so that so galaxies, we would have this problem where if you looked at a star inside a certain radius, it would not be able to tell you about the mass outside that radius if galaxies were spherically symmetric. But they're not. They hmm. never are. So, in fact, we can get a good estimate for the mass because the mass distribution will impact objects even inside of the point that you're measuring. 
Okay. Interesting. And you mentioned that the spectroscopic method is the hard way to get the mass. Is it more yeah. precise? Is that why they decided to use it? Oh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm more of just joking with the language. I mean, <laughs> if you can do spectroscopy, it's great, mm-hmm. right? This is not a particularly far galaxy. Andromeda is the nearest one to the Milky Way. Right. So this being a satellite of Andromeda means it's very close. Mm-hmm. You can't do this with far away galaxies. Right. So you have to use an existing theoretical framework. Mm-hmm. This is maybe how the theoretical framework can be derived from more reliable measurements where you can do spectroscopy. But in this case, they were actually able to get 77 spectroscopic measurements for 77 stars. And so mm-hmm. using the Doppler shift, the small changes in known emission lines, they were able to determine the velocity dispersion of AND21 to a reasonable accuracy. Velocity dispersion is a measure of the distribution of the velocity of the stars. So mm-hmm. there's some average of star speed, and then there's some variation from that. It could be really spread out. You could have a high velocity dispersion, or it could be really small, where in fact all the stars seem to have about the same velocity. That would be a zero velocity dispersion. Okay. So what does the velocity dispersion tell you about the mass? So how they go from a velocity dispersion to a mass is they do have to rely on theory. And this theory was derived not that long ago for dwarf galaxies. So it gives you a relationship between the velocity dispersion and the mass contained within the half-light radius for dwarf galaxies. And then you can extrapolate beyond the half-light radius with an assumed distribution. Okay. You said it was derived for dwarf galaxies. Does that mean there's a different model for larger galaxies, or it just hasn't been determined to as much precision? Regular-sized galaxies have had a relationship for much longer. It's recently been derived, as in the last 10, 15 years or so, for dwarf galaxies. Got it. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify, the difference between the dwarf galaxies and the regular galaxies is the dwarf galaxies are typically satellites of the regular galaxies. So they're like sub-galaxies inside the galaxy, right? Right. They can be on their own. It's not crazy, but mm-hmm. that's typically where they're found, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, specifically this one is in Andromeda, right? It orbits Andromeda. Associated with Andromeda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yep. So the theory was the first way the authors found one estimate for the mass. They wanted to find a second using a code called GravSphere. And the way the GravSphere works is it predicts the mass and composition given the set of tracer stars. So instead of relying on theory, it actually runs the calculations for gravity and distributions, and and it does everything precisely with a lot of computational time, and it has to be in very small increments, and it has a grid. It's it's complicated code. Now, when you say it predicts the composition, I'm assuming you don't mean chemical composition of the (laughs) galaxy. No, I mean uh, visible matter versus dark matter. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. And the tracer stars that they input, those are the 77 they found the velocities of spectroscopically. So they have all the inputs needed for GravSphere. So based on the title of this astrobite, it sounds like they probably didn't find a lot of dark matter, right? Right. So the code predicts the density of dark matter should be three to five times more than what they found everywhere in the galaxy. Hmm. So it should be much more massive than they identified, and that mass should be dark matter. So it has a fraction of the dark matter that you would expect for a galaxy with these properties. And what would cause that? They don't know for sure. A couple of speculations. Hmm. So one thing that can occur is if you have a galaxy with a lot of star formation, the supernovae that are occurring can change the density at the center of the halo. 
So it might mess up some of the calculations that rely upon a certain distribution of the dark matter peaking at the center and falling off as you go in every direction. It can sort of flatten out, and that may change the calculations. But N21 is not one of those galaxies with a ton of star formation, so that can't explain a factor of three to five. They have a better theory. The better <laughs> theory is tidal stripping. In fact, we spoke about tidal stripping in episode 30, Carnivorous Cosmos, and the way we spoke about it, when a star comes close to a black hole, the black hole can rip away some of the outer envelope of the star or even tear it apart completely. Mm-hmm. So this is what they're speculating might have happened to AN-21. It could be on an eccentric orbit and at perigalacton. What the heck do you call the close approach of a galactic <laughs> orbit? Paragalacticon, right? Oh, that sounds like a, like a fun conference or event. Yeah, I was about to, you, you've never been to Galacticon? <laughs> <laughs> okay, at Paragalacticon, mm-hmm. AN-21 got so close to Andromeda that it could have stripped away some of the diffuse dark matter, and this could have happened over a number of different orbits. So that's their leading theory. And then there's, in fact, one last theory that Milena is going to absolutely hate, but the <laughs> AND-21 observations actually support the theory of modified Newtonian gravity, or MOND. Am I known for being anti-MOND? You are. You are known for being anti-MOND. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I've said very much about that. <laughs> wait, wait. Okay. Will, do, when you say supports modified Newtonian gravity, does that mean it's consistent with, but doesn't necessarily suggest Mond? Yes. Okay. That's correct. It's consistent with, but doesn't necessarily suggest. And given how skeptical the astronomy community is, which is highly, this is not considered (laughs) evidence to prove anything near the existence of Mond. But it's funny because most observations of dark matter and galaxies continue to disprove Mond. And this is actually contrary to that. But the tidal theory is much better. (laughs) <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you for bringing that awesome astrobite. It's exciting hearing about both planets and these sort of dark matterless galaxies that certainly a lot of people here at Yale talk about. So. Yeah, but be honest, did you prefer hearing about planets or about Mond, Melina? <laughs> I mean, I do love me a good planet, you know. <laughs> All right, so I think it's time for a one-sentence summary. So could you start us off, Will? Sure. Andromeda 21 is a dwarf galaxy and has really low (laughs) density dark matter and might be tidally stripped by a close encounter with Andromeda and is nicknamed And 21 Aw, I love it. Yeah, that was a great one. Alex, how about you? Mine wasn't nearly as funny as yours. Thanks to Gaia's ever-improving astrometric catalogs, the first imaged exoplanetary system, HR8799, now has a set of mass constraints to boot. Love it. Incredible. So something I've been curious as we've been talking about these different methods for pulling out the masses is how exactly you pull out uncertainties for each of these methods and how robustly can you obtain uncertainties for these different methods? Are you able to get tighter constraints with certain mass estimates than others? Yeah, that's a great question. So we talked about a lot of different methods to derive masses in the intro. For methods that rely on spectroscopy, because you're looking at spectra, you can be limited by your spectral resolution, for example, Mm -hmm. or how bright Mm -hmm. the star is that you're observing. So they're dim, low-mass stars where it's really, really hard to get good signal-to-noise. And also, it turns out, 
how rapidly the star is rotating can limit the radial velocity that you can derive from it. Higher rotation rate translates to a higher uncertainty. But for the radial velocity method we talked about in the intro, it should always be remembered that this only provides a lower bound to exoplanet mass because we can only detect the component of a tug toward or away from us, not in any other direction, mm-hmm. right? There's 3D motion that we can't constrain, and we aren't able to propagate that uncertainty through to our estimates. So I would guess, I would venture a guess that a lot of our mass estimates for planets have uncertainties that are underestimated, generally, because you have to start somewhere, and there are a lot of different caveats with all of these methods that come into play that we can't constrain. The masses for the directly imaged planets come from some sort of compositional model too, right? I mean, I think it's partially the dynamics of the system and it's partially an assumption on what they're made of and some sort of formation model that is assumed for them. So maybe it's just like what assumptions go in and if you tweak those assumptions a little bit, how much does your result change and that's how you get uncertainties? Exactly. And I I think with astronomy in general, people will use a method to come up with an estimate and they'll use another method and they'll come up with another estimate and they'll say, these are pretty much consistent. But actually determining a posterior distribution, combining different estimates in like this fully probabilistic framework. I think is beyond the scope for a lot of works, but actually would be valuable for learning better about how the final estimate is uncertain or not. Right. It gets to the heart of the distinction between systematic error and random error. It's really easy in most of these cases to characterize the random error. Sure. You know, I made this measurement, sure. my system is only certain amount accurate, and therefore this is the most accurate I can say my measurement was and propagate that through all the equations. The systematic error is there's an assumption, there's a prior assumed, multiple assumed somewhere throughout the way that we don't know how accurate to characterize. So without an accurate error on those priors, we then can't understand how accurate our results are to a systematic extent. Right. And there's an assumption implicit within all of these methods. I think that's maybe stem, you'll see it in Fermi estimation, for example, where we assume that if we do things using different methods, that the systematic uncertainties will push and pull the estimate in different directions. So if those are consistent, then the systematic uncertainty must not be that high. But that's also not a quantitative way of doing things. Yeah, I also wanted to ask, because these two different studies use very different methods to determine masses. And as you've mentioned, when you're able to cross match with different methods, you can be more confident in the final result if they match each other. So would you be able to use astrometry to measure masses in the dwarf galaxy system and Doppler shifts for the HR8799 system? And why or why not? So the radial velocity of the host star in HR8799 has been constrained. I think there was a previous paper that estimated an uncertainty of like 12 kilometers per second or something. And Mm -hmm. that was actually used to estimate the properties of planets B and C, the ones further out that have been directly imaged. And there's been one paper on this, and it didn't estimate the properties of planet E that this paper did. And I'm not entirely sure why, but I think it's really interesting. I guess potentially different sensitivities with the different methods used. The radial velocities will give you information in the line of sight, right? Whereas Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. astrometry is telling you in the sky plane. So if you're able to get both, 
then you should get more information. But also HR eight seven nine nine looks very face on. It does so maybe look you very don't get very <laughs> maybe yeah, you don't get right. very much from the RVs. <laughs> right. And maybe that's the answer that the just based on the orbital parameters estimated for the further out planets, this is something you're able to do with radial right. velocity for them and not for, for eight seven nine nine E. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. What about for AND21? Could you use astrometry? In theory, you could if you were going to consider the whole system, the system being Andromeda, AND21, and all of the other mm-hmm. AND objects around <laughs> it, and you were going to explore their gravitational influence on each other, you might be able to get a mass. I don't think we understand galactic cluster dynamics well enough to do that precisely. Mm. Um in theory, you could use AND21 to measure the mass of Andromeda, but I think we have the mass of Andromeda actually pretty okay via other methods. Mm-hmm. So the trick is you need to get dynamics within the galaxy, and you can't capture that using the sort of direct imaging approach. Right. And Gaia is only looking at the Milky Way, I believe. Right. I don't think it looks right. at Andromeda at all, which I don't if it think did, so. it would have been great. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just too far, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a lot harder to resolve in individual stars in other galaxies. Yeah, yeah, that right. makes sense. All right, well, I think this has been a really fruitful discussion, learning all about different ways that we can weigh astronomical objects. It's a really cool indirect method, which is kind of how everything in astronomy seems to work. But I love mm-hmm. dynamics, so I love this topic. Mass different astronomical objects. Yes, mass. <laughs> <different> <laughs> <objects>. <laughs> So that concludes episode 41 of Astro Soundbites, Weighing the Universe. If you want to read the Astrobites we talked about today or the associated papers, then check out the links in the show notes. We also mentioned a couple of links throughout the episodes. You can also find those in the show notes. And if you want to hear more of our spectacular episodes, then you can check them all out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. So thank you for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. 